The rest of you can turn about what's the second Samuel chapter six. Second Samuel chapter six. So, in, in my house, we've got a wi- one of our windows is going bad. You know, it's been there for 25 years, you know. So, um, we, we realized it was going bad and uh, saved, you know, it took a little bit because this isn't just a window, like, you know, four by six or something like that. This is a window. It was an old Pella custom window. It's like 10 feet wide by nine feet tall and uh, in, in a four-season porch that, and that somebody put a lot of money into. And we, we, we priced it out. It was a Pella window, and so we priced that. It would take $10,000 to replace just this one window. And we're like, that is not in our budget. So we are not replacing it with a Pella window, but we are replacing the window. And uh, so we ordered the window, and we got it, uh, got it and uh, Tom helped me bring it over to the house. And it came on this pallet. Um, and not just a, you know, a flat pallet, since it's a window, they, they did it vertically, and so it's a, kind of this vertical pallet, it looks like a ramp, or a, you know, the kids are like, oh, it's, it's going to be this cool thing, and I'm like, uh, no kids, it's just a pallet, you know, we're going to rip it apart and get rid of it, um, except it's valuable lumber, right, and so I'm thinking, I know, they just gave me an extra hundred dollars in, in free wood, you know, so, so I was like, boys, we're going to, we're going to, yesterday morning, Amy's busy doing other stuff, I'm like, Zeke and Judd, we are going to rip this apart, and we're going to save this pallet, this wood from this pallet. And so they get out there, they're like, yes, we are, we are men, we are going to conquer this pallet. So we start to try to rip the pallet apart, and we realize, because they wanted it to be secure, that like every joint, you know, every join in the pallet is nailed at least five times, you know, and when, it, when they stapled, they stapled 10 times, you know, so it's like everything. Not only that, but of course, it's a pallet, so it's cheap wood. It's not like a good two-by-four by any stretch of the imagination. This is like the cheapest two-by-fours they could find. So we're trying to rip it apart, and we're slowly getting there. But in the process, we're ripping up all the wood to get there. You get what I'm, you know what I'm saying? And uh, so eventually, I'm like, you know, like half an hour in, I'm like, you know what? We are done ripping up this pallet. We're going to burn the pallet. I don't care. Um, and, I, you know, of course, my, my pastor's brain is kind of working at the same time because I'm watching them work, and I'm working some myself, and we're kind of doing this. And, uh, and I'm like, you know what? In, in life, it's true. You're always tearing something down in order to build something else up, right? I mean, that's what we were doing. We got this pallet, and, uh, and uh, we're, we're tearing it down, but we're also trying to build something else up at the same time. And it's like, that's not all the time, but often in life, it seems like you're, you're tearing something else down in order to build something else up. And, and it's, it's what we do in life in various ways, right? I mean, if you're, if you're thinking about uh, losing weight, what do you have to do? Well, you have to maybe tear down going out to eat as much in order to build up eating less food, you know, or you have to tear down not exercising in order to build up exercising some, right? This is what we do in life. If, you're, if you have a relationship that's not going well, we might have to, you know, like, okay, how do I tear this down a little bit in order to build something else in my life? Or, or maybe it's just uh, my, my career. I've got to tear down, you know, the, people's perceptions of me in order to build up maybe 
getting further along and what I think I need to do with my life. We're, we're always doing that in various ways. And it's not just um, with, with those kinds of aspects of our life. You, you see it even in, in regards to our relationship with God, right? And it's kind of popular, uh, or more popular at least when I was young, for, for people to kind of tell their deconstruction story, that is how they came to not believe in God, right? So they like tear down how, what they, they, they don't believe about God anymore, and they want to walk through that story for people. And, um, and, and, and when, I, when I read those stories at various times, uh, I think to myself, you know what? I remember being there as a young person and having to form my faith for myself and, and in some ways to tear down certain aspects of, of what, I, what I kind of gained maybe unintentionally from my parents or whatever in order to, to really understand who God is and, and, and believe in God for myself. And the problem, obviously, is when you, when you do tear things down in order to build things up, it kind of sometimes is like that palette right? Where you're trying to tear it down and really you're just ripping it apart. You're not gaining anything useful out of tearing something down. You're just simply ripping apart the pallets. And at the end, you don't actually have anything that's worth building back up. And that's why I was like, boys, we're stopping because <laughs> this is a waste of time. We're never going to get anything useful out of, this, out of this wood. And as we look at uh, look at David in, in, in this passage, what we see is David building and establishing his kingdom. He's building something up, and at the same time, he's also tearing something down. He's, there's certain aspects of the old kingdom that aren't good for Israel, and he's tearing those out. And at the same time, he's in, in, in putting things into the kingdom that truly matter. And if, if David does this, and we even see Jesus doing this at times, right, in, in the Gospels, he's, he's tearing down people's perceptions of how the relationship of God works. He's saying it's not like the Pharisees. If you think your righteousness needs to be like the Pharisees and the scribes, you don't get it. It has to be greater than that. And you're like, people are like, what? <laughs> like, they're the most holy people we know. What do you mean it has to be greater? But, and so he has to tear down people's perceptions in order to build up the right ideas. So if David and Jesus do it in regards to the kingdom, and every generation struggles with this process, what I want to do as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 6 through 8 this morning is notice what David builds up in order to preserve things that truly matter in our process of tearing down and building up. Because this is God's kingdom that we're talking about here. If we're not careful about how we tear down and build up, we actually don't gain a kingdom, we lose his kingdom. And if we lose his kingdom and build our own in its place, then that's something that's ultimately going to be destroyed and us along with it. So this is a serious matter. It's not easy to think about what we tear down and build up. In fact, this isn't just something that was a struggle in our day. Back when Christianity first started... People struggled to understand the point of Christianity and how God's kingdom worked. In fact, the second century Greek philosopher Celsus captures just how upside down the kingdom is and how confusing it can be in an attack. So he's, he's trying to say there's a problem with how Christianity and the followers of Jesus work. He, write, he wrote this, those who summon people to the other mysteries, that is, the other religions, that's how they referred to religions, the, the mysteries, things that had to be hidden that were revealed 
by the gods. Other, those who, some people to other religions make this pro- preliminary pro- proclamation. Whoever has pure hands and a wise tongue. And again, others say, whoever is pure from all defilement and whose soul knows nothing of evil and who has lived well and righteously. He says, such are the preliminary exhortations of those who promise purification from sins. It's like this is how other religions work. They say, hey, if you're wise, if you're, if you're smart, if you've lived righteously, then we'll tell you more about how you can be pure, purified from sin. He goes on to say, but let us hear what, what folk these Christians call. He's like, what, 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 what people do Christians invite to become Christians? He says, whoever is a sinner, they say, whoever is unwise, whoever is a child, in a, in a word, whoever is a wretch, the kingdom of God will receive him. Do you not say that a sinner is he who is dishonest, a thief, a burglar, a poisoner, a sacrilegious fellow, a grave robber? What others would a robber invite and call? Why on earth this preference for sinners? That's his attack on Christianity. Why is this a preference for all the evil people in the world to say, hey, come be a part of us? Because he doesn't understand he doesn't understand the kingdom of God. He doesn't understand how this works. And so he's, he's potentially tearing the wrong things down in order to build the wrong things up. And when you do that, you're building your own kingdom, not God's. And so as we look at 2 Samuel this morning, my hope is that you'll see David's building of, of God's kingdom in God's way and remind ourselves about what's truly important in the process of tearing down and building up. What things that truly matter, the things that we can't tear down, even as we try to build up and build into God's kingdom. So let's look at 2 Samuel. Let's start again in chapter 5. I just want to remind you of this, this, this kingdom that David set up, right? The elders of Israel come to him finally after seven years and say, hey, we want you to be king. They make him king. He captures Jerusalem. And again, it says, verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And David, and the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And so David went up and defeated them. And then it says that the Philistines came up again, verse 22, and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, the same place as before. And David inquired of the Lord. He said, you shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in on the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. You know, David had won a lot of battles already against the Philistines. But even as he builds up God's kingdom, again, here's the key, one key aspect of, of how God's kingdom works, and that is that we depend on God in God's kingdom. It's not about us. It's not about what we can accomplish. It's not about what we can do. It's about what God is doing and what God has done and our dependence on him. If we aren't depending on him in this process of walking with him, then we we can't be in a position where we're building up God's kingdom. We're usually in a position of building up our own kingdom. We're concerned with what we can accomplish, what, what we can do. And sometimes, yes, dependence on God means activity. David here fights battles. 
But he starts with saying, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to accomplish this? How do you want me to act? It started with that dependence. And sometimes dependence on God means waiting on him because God doesn't tell us what to do yet. Or he says, hey, uh, it's, it's not, I'm not going to open up the door and make something happen right now. You just need to stop and wait on me. And dependence on God often looks that way because God's timing is not our timing, right? He's working in ways that we cannot see, as the song goes. And that waiting on God means patience. It means, it means to depend on God and, and not do the things that we want to do or the things that we think need to happen as we wait for God to do what only he can do, right? I ran across this quote from Andrew Murray in the book Waiting on God this week, and it struck me as it, as it talked about waiting on God and that patience idea. He says, to many it will seem strange just how difficult it is to truly, truly to wait on God. The great stillness of soul that sinks into its own helplessness and waits for God to reveal himself. Just, just that phrase for a second. The great stillness of soul that sinks into its own helplessness. Do you know what he's talking about there? That sense of, man, I, I can't accomplish this on my own. That, that I, can't, I can't make this happen. I know for myself that I'm, I think to myself, but I can, right? I, I don't sink into my own helplessness. When I'm threatened with my own helplessness, then I attack, right? I go after it. I'm like, no, I'm going I'm to take a class, or I'm going to get smarter, or I'm going to work harder, or I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I don't sink into my own helplessness. I fight my own helplessness. That's my typical response. And yet here he's saying when we wait on God, we, sink, we, 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 we get a sense of our own helplessness and instead of fighting it, we sink into it. We say, Whew, man, you're right, I can't do something about this. And we sink into it, not for the purpose of depression and despair, but for the purpose of saying, God, <laughs> I can't do it on my own. I need you. He goes on, the deep humility that hesitates to do anything in its own will or its own strength except as God works to will and to do. The meekness that is content to be and to know nothing except as God gives his light. The entire resignation of the will that only wants to be a vessel through which the Holy Spirit can flow and move. All these elements of perfect patience do not appear at once. Do not appear at once. And I'm like, but why, God? <laughs> right? Why, why can't it just, you know, you, you flip a switch and I am patient and I am waiting on you and I'm perfect at that. But that's not the way waiting works, don't you understand, right? It's, it's not like when we say wait on God, it means just do nothing and, and feel nothing, Right? When you, when you read the Psalms, David is never impassive and unimpassioned, <laughs> right? He feels. He cares. Waiting is not supposed to be this, well, everything is okay and I'm just fine waiting, you know. Yeah. I don't see too many people in the doctor's office <laughs> sitting in the chair being like, I'm just fine sitting here for the rest of the day. You know, it's okay. 
They're all thinking, when's my turn? I want to get this fixed. I've got stuff to do, right? And it's okay to have those feelings. It's okay to have that Im- impatient side of it, but, but that impatient side, we turn to God and say, God, I can't do it on my own. I can't fix it on my own. I am waiting on you. And I want you to do something, but I'm still waiting. I'm not going to step out until you tell me to. And that dependence on God really is a, is a decision, an action that says, I'm not going to just do my own thing. I'm going to obey my king. I'm going to decide that, that if he doesn't tell me to do something, if he's not empowering me to act, if he's not going before me, then I'm not going without him. He ends this quote by saying, but they will come into maturity as the soul maintains its position and continues to say, and he quotes Psalm 62, truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. And if we're trying to build things into our lives and tear things down, this is one thing we should not tear out of our lives but instead we should seek to build up into our lives that sense of dependence on God that I can't, that when I feel helpless, when I feel like I I can't get, I'm stuck, I don't know what to do, I feel like (laughs) there's things that are outside of my control, that we sink into that sense of helplessness and make it turn our eyes up to the one who can truly help us who can truly deliver us, who can truly empower and work in ways that we cannot see and cannot know, but ultimately to do good, to bless, to guide. And so as you are remembering this, thinking about this, one of the things that's happening here is that victories are not victories. This is not David saying, look at how great I am. (laughs) This is David depending on God. And just, just to apply this maybe broader than our own souls in a sense, what are the things that we go to depend on? Sometimes it's the government, right? We depend on the government, and we, we hope that the government does something, and, and we, we kind of like, okay, it, it, the government needs to act on our behalf, or the government doesn't need to act on our behalf, and we fight about how to depend on government sometimes. But government is not ultimately about us. It's ultimately about God's rule of his people and his universe, we don't depend on government, we depend on God. And when we run into the government and feel helpless, it should cause us to go back to God. Same thing with our family. Even as God has designed family to be there for us, to help us, to encourage us, to, to, to lift us up when things are difficult. But family is not what we depend on ultimately. It's also, family is also a time when we realize, I'm not like this person. I can't ever be like that person. And that reminds us that, again... It's not like being like someone else or having all of these people in your life as much as it is about depending on God in your life. The same thing with church, right? You think, well, God put the church together. The church is supposed to... No, the church is, again, it's just a place, another place to show God's rule of his people and his universe, and we don't depend on the church as, as much as we remember that, to, that the church helps us to depend on God. So the question, just as we start out this morning, is how's your dependence meter doing, right? 
Is it like a two or a three where you're like, ah, I'm depending on God a little bit, but man, there's a lot of things I'm fighting about my own helplessness. I, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm, I'm, I'm fighting it here, I'm fighting it there. And, and, and you haven't just stepped back and said, God's in control, God is good, God, I'm feeling helpless right now, but I know that you can work and I'm waiting on you. That's something that no matter what age you're at, you need to not tear out of your life. You need to build into your life. You need to think about ways that you can, you can say, okay, how can, I, how can I go back to God after this thing or before this thing? Or I know, I know these things are going to happen in my week. How can, I, how can I show or go to God before them so that, God, so that I'm building this dependence on God and, and the things that are going on in my week on a day after day after day basis? Build it into your life. It will stand the test of time. I can look around this room and see older person after older person who is here who could testify again and again that when they waited on God, it was worth it. So don't rip that out. Build that in. That dependence and waiting on God. Not only that, though, is he building in, he's also building, point number two, the praise of God. He's encouraging us to live a life of praise to God and encouraging us to praise God ourselves. And we see that in what David, one of the primary things David does besides Jerusalem and capturing his capital, one of the primary things that at least the text is pointing out that David does in building his kingdom is he brings the ark to Jerusalem. He's, in a sense, what he's saying is, like so far with, with, with Saul's kingdom so far, what had happened was Saul, Saul became king, and whenever there was this crisis, he would rally the people and he would go go fight the crisis. And in some ways, it was like, okay, God's appointed me king, but I'm going to show off how kingly I am by putting out all these fires. And, and living in crisis mode, you have to do it sometimes. You have to put out fires. You have to fight battles. I get that. But David is saying there's something else about the life of the kingdom of God that's really crucial here, and it's about the ark symbolizes the presence of God. He's saying, we want to make central to the life of our nation the presence of God, the worship of God, because without that as the center, you can go from crisis to crisis to crisis and look good in those crises, but in the, in the other times, in the quiet times, it can all fall apart because you're not making central the, the presence of God in your life. And so, so we see David, chapter 6, verse 1, says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose. You're like, oh, there's another battle. There's not something else to fight. But then he went and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called the name, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. What he's doing here, you, know, you can see that in what he's saying. He's, he's military language. He's getting the army together, and he's talking about God as the God of, God of war, the Lord of hosts. But he's saying, hey, let's just bring him into the center. Let's make him the center, not the battles the center. Not, not the war, the center, but him, the center. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on a hill. And Uzzah and 
Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the cart. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nachon, Uzzah put out, the hand, put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told that King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Edom, Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And he describes how they did it. Um, I just want, so, so here's this story here. He's like, okay, what's, what's wrong? What, what happened? Because Uzzah dies and it's clear that from the text that it's, it's saying that God was angry. It was a judgment of God against what Uzzah did. And there's a couple of things that are going on in the story. First of all, according to the law that Moses had been given, the, the, the ark was always supposed to be carried that is, you're supposed to have Levites on each side with poles carrying the ark between the groups of, of Levites in order to, 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 to carry it and have it stable at all times. And of course, it's, it's, it clearly says here that it's, it's, it's uh, carried on a cart. And you say, well, the, the procedure is wrong and God is upset because the procedure didn't happen properly. But, but when the ark is brought in brought from Obed-Edom to Jerusalem, it doesn't say, and they carried it properly this time. So the emphasis is in, in the text. It's there. It's, it's, it's saying this. there was a problem with the procedure, but the emphasis with the error is not on the procedure that was the problem. Part of the reason for that, I think, is because then... You notice what happens, we, we haven't read it yet, but David, in the story, they come, and David's been dancing and before the Lord, and then Michael sees that, and when David comes home, Michael calls him on his procedure. He's like, you, you danced inappropriately. That wasn't good. And David blows her off, basically, on that, okay? He says, that wasn't my problem. Um, so, so the procedure is not the point of the story, even though the procedure was a problem and the, uh, the, the narrator, God himself, in a sense, is, is pointing that out and saying, okay, the procedure was a problem, but that's not what I was really angry with, okay? You say, well, it's disrespect. You know, they weren't supposed to touch the ark. Yes, that, but, but that's also not the emphasis of the text, okay? What does the text say is the problem? It says... It's, it says, verse 7 says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there. What was his error? It says, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Okay? And you get the idea, right? You, you understand how this works, right? You're, you're transporting something along, just like we transport that window in, into the garage. And you know what? I was pretty careful that the window didn't tip over, right? <laughs> because I only got one window. I got so much money, I'm not going to spend more money. Um, it, but the point was is that I had to help the window get there. 
I was careful because I was in charge of the window. And here you see, in a sense, Uzzah saying, I'm in charge of the ark. It, the oxen are stumbling. I have to protect the ark, and I'm going to put my hand on it. And so the error is not that, that the, the, not, the anger is not because of the procedure as much as it is because Uzzah is saying, I can help out God and I, I'm not going to respect God's holiness, not in the sense that he's so far separate from me in the sense of I just, I just did something wrong. No, in the sense that God doesn't need our help. Again, we're back to that dependence on God idea here. God doesn't need your help to get done what he is going to get done. He's God. He has a million different ways he can accomplish something. He doesn't need your help to do it. That doesn't mean that he doesn't invite us in to what he's doing. That doesn't mean that he doesn't want to involve us in what he's doing and involve us in the joy and the blessings of what he's doing, the challenges of what he's doing. That doesn't mean that. It just means that God doesn't need your help to protect himself. And Uzzah here is clearly putting his hand on the ark because I, he's saying, I don't want it to tip over. I don't want to damage the ark. And God's like, I think I can take care of my stuff very much, thank you, because I'm God and you are not. But it's not the kind of like, oh, I'm selfish here. I'm just protecting my things. No, it's like, don't you understand who I is? And that is where the holiness of God comes in. Don't you understand who God is? God is different than us. We need help. I will probably call some of you and like, hey, I need help getting my window into place. You know? I'm not Superman. I can't take this window and lift it into place myself. It'd be cool. I would love to do that for my wife, show off all my muscles and go, look, I'm so awesome. I can hold the window in place myself. She'd be like, oh, yes, you're so awesome. It's not going to happen. You know? I wish it would, but no. <laughs> but, but, but God is God. Is God. He is all-powerful. He's all, all righteous. He's all just. He can handle anything, and he can solve any problem. He doesn't need our help. And Uzzah here is clearly saying, oh, God needs my help. And God's like, uh-uh. It's not the way it works. And David's afraid here. He's, he's confused a little bit. Like, why does this happen? But then... He sees, he gets the report that God's still blessing, God's still working. And you see that emphasis when you get into chapter 7 again. This is a lesson we have to learn over and over and over again, in a sense, in our lives, is that God doesn't need our help. His grace comes into our lives, and he helps us. And chapter 7 is about not David building God's house, but God building David's house. God's like, I'm going to take care of this, David. My grace is going to be poured into your life. And so as we go through life, the emphasis in our lives is not on how we've helped God all the way through our lives. Look at all the things I've done. I went to church. I did this. I did that. I'm 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 such a help to God. The emphasis is on look at what God did for me. Look at how God blessed me. Look at the grace that he's poured into my life. Because I know this because there's, again, the opposite challenge that takes place, right? David's praising God with the people. And it says in verse 14, David danced before the Lord with all his might. Notice the challenge that comes to that. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, and it says the daughter of Saul multiple times, so you get the the point, 
The emphasis here in this story is not that he was, she was David's wife as much as she was Saul's daughter. She was part of the old kingdom, the old way of doing things. The daughter, Michael, the daughter, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And she brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and delivered, distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread and a portion of meat and a and a cake of bread, uh, sorry, a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord, and I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abused in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I should be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. And what's going on here? She raises an accusation. David you're being inappropriate in your worship. It was inappropriate what you did. And the text here, again, leaves the matter of whether it was inappropriate or not. It leaves it, it, leaves it alone. It doesn't solve the problem for us. Like, was he doing it inappropriately or not? And, and, and just like, it just sets that aside. And I think it's because he wants, the, again, the narrator wants you to ask a question like, what's more important here? Like, why aren't we asking that question? Because most of us, again, would ask that question like, I want to be appropriate. I want to be proper. I want to do this right. And we're back to this tension between the old kingdom and the new. And I just want to kind of help you walk through this so you might kind of get, get the difference in the contrast that, that's happening here. So the old kingdom, it really is about people-pleasing versus God-praising. Okay, the, this is the tension that we're in. The old kingdom is people-pleasing. Saul did, did what he did because of the, to please the people, right? The reason why, he at least said, he didn't kill everybody that he was supposed to kill is because the people would have been unhappy with him for doing that. David here is, is in a sense saying, I'm about praising God, not making sure everybody else thinks I'm proper, everybody else thinks I'm good, everybody else thinks that I've done everything properly and appropriately. I'm here about praising God for what he's done. He's taken me out of the hands of Saul and brought me into, into his kingdom and made me his king. And, and God has done all of this, and I want to focus on that. And so you have the idea, again, of the audience of many versus the audience of one. He's like, my audience wasn't everybody. My audience was God. And I was obeying God. We're back to that, again, that idea of dependence on God. Again, what are you building into your life? Are you building in the idea that God is your audience? Or are you building into your life the idea that all these people around here, they're my audience. I'm, I'm performing on a stage for them. You know, social media overall helps that sense of life. 
I'm performing on a stage. Look at me. I'm on vacation. Look at me. I'm having fun. And you forget about the audience of one. That there's only one person watching you that truly matters in their opinion of you, and that's God himself. And David is turning to his wife and saying, you know what? What you think of me doesn't matter as much as what God thought of me for that. And we don't really understand what God thought of him. or It leaves that aside for a sense. Why? Because in some senses we're back to God can take care of the people that he wants to take care of. He's God. You get the idea here too that holiness... The old kingdom is all about holiness can be manipulated. Like, I can go to God and kind of, if I do the right things, God will produce the right results, right? That's how Saul approached God. If I do the right things, if I offer the sacrifices, then God's going to give me victories. But man, if I don't get the sacrifices done, then God's not going to give me the victories. And David's like saying, no, Holiness is a cause for joy and God's blessing. God doesn't have to bless me. God doesn't have to give me victories. God doesn't have to do all those things. But when he does, and I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to step back and say, this is awesome. Look what God did. And I'm going to focus on that in my life and not all the ways that everyone else is telling me, look how, look how you better operate. You better be proper. You better do this. I mean, at minimum, she's saying, David, 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 you know, when my, son, my, my father was king, he always dressed in royal robes. He always dressed up appropriately. He acted appropriately. Everybody knew he was king, but you were acting like everyone else. You were just in there, in the group, praising God, and that's not proper for a king. At minimum, she's saying that. And he's like, no. My point is to praise God with everyone else because... God is the one who blessed me. I didn't, I, I didn't make this happen. I'm not, the, I'm not really the king, is his point, is what he's saying. I'm not really the king. God's the king. Another way of putting this, what we can gain through power and propriety and personal preference, that's how the old kingdom works. I, what, what can I gain? And I, I can gain it through my personal preferences. I can gain it through my proper propriety, gain it through power and position. The new kingdom is about humbly praising God, what God has accomplished. David's like, I just want to be a servant here. I'm not the king. I'm not the one in charge. I'm just praising the one who is. Which comes down to, it's about you or it's not about you. Which one is it? Which one are you building into your life? Like, this is about me and what I can do and what I can gain and how I can make, manipulate situations and appear proper and do all the right things so that, that, that I can get what I want out of life. Or it's about God. And the fact that he's rescuing people from sin and death and he is, he is doing this work and, he, and only he can do it and he wants to be acknowledged as the only one who can because he's the only one who can. And we live as if that's true. And we walk as if that's true. And we rejoice as if that's true. So, it reminds me of Philippians chapter 2, right? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of servants and being, form, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You know, Jesus on the cross wasn't dressed in royal robes. He was despised. He was really despised, not just by the servant girls, like Michael thought, but by everyone around him. He hung there naked on a cross to win you the greatest victory you could ever win, your victory over sin and death. And that's why he has the name above every name, because he knew there was only an audience of one that he had to answer to, and that was his Father in heaven. And he knew that the only source of blessing was to look at what God would do, not what he could gain out of acting appropriately and doing only what counted to other people. God's kingdom is not about what I like or dislike. I cannot make God in my image. And therefore, I must radically place my life on what God says he is doing through his word and praise him. There is no other kingdom that will survive. There is no other kingdom that will survive. You can try to tear this out, be like, no, I don't want it to be about God. I want it to make it about me. And you, all you will do is destroy yourself. Or you can build into your life. Man, who am I, who am I pleasing here? Is it God? Man, I got to face my boss. I got to do this. Am I worried too much about what my boss thinks or too much worried about, am I, am I concerned? I want to please God here. I want to honor God with how I do things. Are you, are you so focused on what you can gain from God? Like, man, I've got to do my devotions and do this and do this and God's going to bless me and if my day is going to go okay. Or are you just step, stepping back and saying, God, man, I praise you. You've given me life and health and joy and peace. I've got Jesus Christ. I've got forgiveness of sin. I don't know what today holds, but I know who holds it and what, he's, what you've done for me already. Which one are you building into your life? Because you're either, you're building one or the other. It's just the way it works. I'm not going to get to point three in the last chapter, but This is the question. Which kingdom is being built in your life? Because you're either building your kingdom or you're surrendering to God's kingdom. You're either praising him for what he's done for you or you're trying to manipulate him and see what you can gain by doing all the right things. And we sang this morning, right? We sang with joy, hopefully. Hopefully you sang with joy, right? May the peoples praise you. We want to be a light to Ames and Story County and to the world of, look what God has done. Look, we, we are nothing. We're people from all these different backgrounds and all these different cultures and all these different nationalities. Um, and, and, but we've done nothing in this world, but we know the God who has done what truly matters. He's rescued us from sin and death. He's given us light and hope and peace. 
He's given us the hope for the future. We, we look at the future, we say, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> the news every day says things can change radically from one minute to the next. But again, we know who holds the future. Which one are you building? And which one are you tearing down? This week, as you go through your life, Will you build up the kingdom of God? Will you build up that sense of dependence on him? Will you build up that sense of praise in him? Will you, will you do that? But through prayer, you know, just, you know what, I need to, I need to remind myself to, to, to just, just, God, you're in charge here. Those times when you feel helpless, God, I'm helpless, but you're not. Those times when you're like, oh, man, I just want to feel down and discouraged, no, God has done something in this world. I know God has done something in this world. I'm going to praise him because he's not done doing something in this world. Philippians 1, 6, right? He who has begun a good work in you will perform it, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's not done yet. How do I know? Because Jesus hasn't returned yet. So if he's not done, we get to praise him for what he has done and what he will do. Are you building that into your life? Are you letting that be the foundation of your soul? You know, you can either go through life tearing everything down around you. Proverbs puts it this way, right? It says, the, the, the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish woman tears it down with her own hands. And that's not a sexist verse. It's saying, even in a patriarchal culture where a woman doesn't have a lot of power, she still has the ability to tear her own house down if she's foolish. Or she can choose to put the right things in the right places and build it back up. So you can look at your life and you can say, oh, I don't have a lot of power, I don't have a lot of control. <laughs> you don't, but you know the one who does and you can depend on him, and you can praise him. So will you do it? Will you do it this week? It really, really, really matters because there's only one kingdom that's going to survive. There's only one kingdom that's going to survive, and that's God's. Everything else is going to be torn down. So since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us worship God Let's worship him with joy because we can depend on him. His kingdom will reign and rule forever. Heavenly Father, oh, we get so caught up in our own kingdoms, God. Our own ideas, our own preferences, our own power and position, we want to keep what we have rather than looking to you and depending on you. And Lord, we thank you for David's example here. We thank you for his dependence on you. We're thankful for his praise of you. And it, even when things didn't go right, and when he's like, God, I'm afraid of you, yet he looked to you, and he didn't try to solve it on his own. Lord, when we feel helpless, help us to call out to you. Lord, when we feel discouraged, help us to remember what you have done. Because your kingdom 
will last forever. Help us to live in that kingdom and for that kingdom, depending on you. In your son's name we pray, amen.